The Jogcast. Not a threat to Earth. With Adam Averson, Claire Bretherton, Indy Leclerc, Ian Morrison, Josie Peters, Mark Perver, and Charlie Walker. The Jogcast, February 2015 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jogcast. I'm Adam Everson and joining me in the studio are Josie and Charlie. Hello. Hello. So uh, in the show this time, Indy interviews Professor Chris Consolis about the formation of galaxies in the recent universe. Ian Morrison and Claire Bretherton take a look at what's happening in the February night sky and we bring you some astronomical odds and ends. But first, before all of that, here's Indy with this month's news. In the news this month, the tale of two robots. On the 12th of November 2014, much of the scientific community and many interested members of the public all around the world held their breath as the Philae lander detached from the orbiting spacecraft Rosetta and began its slow descent down to the surface of comet 67P Churyumov-Gerasimenko. This final step was the culmination of years of work by ESA, which started with the somewhat far-fetched idea of trying to land a robot on a comet. The resulting mission, Rosetta, was launched in 2004 from the Kourou Space Center in French Guiana and took 10 years to make it to the comet rendezvous location. The complex trajectory flown by Rosetta was carefully calculated beforehand, involving several gravity assists around various planets. The craft finally reached 67P in August 2014, performing a series of burns to reduce its velocity relative to the comet from 775 meters per second to just 7.9 meters per second. Following this, the probe followed two successive triangular paths as it approached the comet's surface before entering actual orbit around 67P at an altitude of around 30 kilometers on the 10th of September. The best image of the comet taken before Rosetta's arrival was but a few pixels across, and its shape and layout were completely unknown. The comet was mapped to a high degree of precision, revealing a sort of two-lobed shape with one half bigger than the other. From some angles, the comet was somewhat reminiscent of a rubber duck. A landing site was chosen for Philae and was dubbed Agilkia, in reference to the island on the Nile which housed the lander's namesake, the Philae Obelisk. And so, on the 12th of November, after a three-hour descent, Philae touched down on 67P, or rather, bounced down. The harpoons meant to anchor the lander onto the comet failed to fire, and due to the extremely weak gravitational attraction exerted by the comet, Philae bounced back up a couple of times before coming to rest at the base of what appeared to be some sort of cliff. Unfortunately, this meant that part of it was in permanent shadow, and it could not replenish its batteries with solar power as planned. Nevertheless, both Rosetta and Philae took, and in the case of Rosetta are still taking, large amounts of important and interesting data while in the comet's vicinity using a plethora of different instruments. The first wave of scientific findings from these results has just been published in the journal Science in a total of seven papers. According to these first results, the comet is very porous, with a density similar to that of wood, despite weighing roughly 10 billion tons. The surface of the comet nucleus seems to be rich in organic materials, and water ice is only rarely present. The probes also measured a lot of information about the coma of the comet, the cloud of gas produced by ices sublimating from the nucleus. It appears to change quite a lot on a day-to-day basis, both in terms of density and composition. The molecules present in the coma include H2O, CO, CO2, H2O17O, and H2O18O, the last two are both isotopes of oxygen. Furthermore, the deuterium-hydrogen ratio in the water was measured, and was found to differ from the value found for Earth, ocean-like water, going against the idea that this is the kind of water present in comets like 67P, known as Jupiter family comets. Finally, Rosetta measured the size of the dust cloud surrounding the comet, finding roughly 10,000 grains larger than 5 centimeters surrounding the nucleus in bound orbits. These are believed to have originated during the previous perihelion passage, that is, point of orbit closest to the Sun. 
Currently, the comet is only emitting grains up to 2 centimeters in size. Rosetta also observed the progressive ionization of molecules surrounding the comet due to the growing influence of the solar wind as the comet gets nearer to the sun. These initial measurements provide a reference point both in terms of the global shape, the various surfaces of 67P have been given names taken from ancient Egypt, and the composition of the comet nucleus and coma. Rosetta will perform many more flybys before the closest approach to the sun in August 2015 and will provide a wealth of information to track the evolution of the comet with time. In a related turn of events, scientists are debating whether or not to alter a planned flyby to look for Philae. The decision would mean sacrificing a so-called zero-phase flyby, taking the probe just 6 kilometers from the surface with the sun behind it, thus providing shadow-free, extremely detailed images of the comet's surface. Instead of this, Rosetta would fly over a 20 by 200 meter strip of the comet where Philae is presumed to be located. This would provide a scientific benefit, as knowing where the lander is exactly would enable the team on the CONCERT experiment, which sends radio waves between Philae and Rosetta to study the comet's interior, to process their data accurately. And it would also determine whether the lander would be able to to reawaken once the comet gets closer to the sun. Even if scientists do decide to look for Philae, technical difficulties in altering the mission plan may still scupper the initiative. If the flyby does not go ahead, the Rosetta orbiter will only be able to get that close to the comet again in 2016. In the meantime, Philae is just going to have to wait things out and hope it gets enough sun to wake up again. Thanks for that, Indy. Now, Indy interviews Professor Chris Consolis about the formation of galaxies in the recent universe. I'm with Professor Chris Consolis from the University of Nottingham today. Hi, Chris. Hi, how are you? Really good, thanks. So your area of specialty is galaxy formation. That's a pretty broad area, so could you maybe just give us a little rundown on what people are interested in when they say they study galaxy formation per se? Are we looking at the whole history of a galaxy? Are we looking at what the conditions are when you start to form a galaxy or how it evolves over the course of that? All of those, I would say, are the things that people look at. So the idea basically is that you have, in the very early universe, you have the first structures to form, which should be, we think, on the scale of very little, tiny galaxies. And somehow those galaxies grow to become the large galaxies that we see today. So a large part of galaxy formation studies is trying to figure out how that happened and to identify when it happened as well. As when did the galaxies form? When did the most massive galaxies form? When did galaxies that we see that have certain types of structures, like spiral arms, like in the Milky Way, how did those form? When did those form? So there's lots of individual questions, but basically it's trying to trace from the beginning of time to today how that process happened. Okay, so I guess it might be useful to start with a bit of a time scale. So obviously you have the start, the beginning of structure formation, you have clouds that coalesce into stars that then coalesce into galaxies, but when do you have the first kind of objects that can legitimately be classified as galaxies as opposed to just big groups of stars? The first galaxies would be things which consisted of objects in what we call dark matter halos. And so the idea is a theoretical idea, which is that all galaxies have dark matter halos surrounding them. Okay. And so a galaxy would be something which exists within a dark matter halo. But the theory predicts that even the first star formation would be within these big dark matter halos, which you can think of basically as being kind of large spherical blobs of dark matter, which the galaxies kind of are born in and live their lives throughout. And so a galaxy is defined as something which basically has this dark matter associated with it. So I guess it's all theoretical at the moment, but would you say that's necessary for the actual physical mechanism of galaxy formation, or is that still, is the jury still out on that? It is in some ways. So the dark matter is a nice way of containing the matter that you need to form the galaxy. And the reason is because in the early universe, the gas in the universe is very hot. And so when you have hot gas, it wants to move around, it wants to you know fly about as hot gas will do. But if it's contained in a large gravitational potential, like a large dark matter halo, then it can't do that. It has to stay put, 
and that gives it time to cool down, and then when it cools down, it can form stars. And so that's kind of the theoretical basis for why we think that galaxy formation is intimately tied with the idea that dark matter is a fundamental part of the process. Okay. So in terms of timescales now, when do we start seeing these first galaxies in the history of the universe? We don't know quite yet when we see the first galaxies. As far as we can look back in time, we see galaxies. And we still haven't gotten to that edge where we say, okay, this is the first galaxy, or this must be one of the first galaxies to form. As far back as we can see, which is now a few hundred million years after the Big Bang, we see galaxies, and there's evidence that those galaxies have been around for a while. So we know that galaxy formation must have happened even earlier, but we haven't been able to probe that yet. But new telescopes like the James Webb Space Telescope, which will be launched by NASA in the next few years, we'll be able to hopefully probe at least a little bit further back and maybe we'll have some definite answers for how those first galaxies and, importantly, when those first galaxies assembled. But we know it had had to happen within the first, let's say, a couple hundred million years, but we don't know exactly when. Okay. So admittedly, you can't see the first galaxies that have formed, but you can sort of observe galaxy formation processes at work. So how does that work, and what do we know about galaxy formation processes? These first galaxies have very low masses, and we know that they have to form into the bigger galaxies that we see today. So there are several processes that we can look at in detail. One of them is is merging. So one of the most common ways galaxies form is by smashing together to form a bigger galaxy. So you have two small galaxies, they smash together to form a big galaxy, and then so on and so forth keeps going on through time, and you get bigger and bigger galaxies as the universe evolves. Mm -hmm. Another way is just from star formation, that if you have a lot of star formation, you can make a galaxy grow more and more through time. And the higher the star formation rate, the more stars you have. And the more stars you have, the larger your galaxy is. And so the conversion of gas into stars is probably the dominant way. And the mergers is probably the secondary way in which these, these galaxies are forming. But some of the questions we don't know is where the gas that forms stars and galaxies comes from. Because we know that the galaxies themselves don't have enough gas, for the most part, to form all of those stars. It has to come from somewhere else. And so mm -hmm. a big question is, where does the gas and galaxies come from? Right. And how do you attack these sorts of questions? It, specifically, your research, is it more of a, a modeling thing where you develop theoretical models of galaxies, or is it using observations from various telescopes, space telescopes, and observing different galaxies at different stages of formation, or is it a combination of both? It's both. So personally, I am an observer, so I look at galaxies, and I look at how they change with time. I look at how much mass is being built up through the merging, through the star formation, and then try to infer how much gas is coming in from what we call the intergalactic medium, which is the material in between galaxies, where we know that there is gas, and some of that gas can fall into the galaxy, and creating more of the galaxy, sort of a pollution of, of gas falling into the galaxy mm -hmm. and forming new stars. But having said that, there is a large industry of people doing theoretical research into these same questions and looking at it in different ways based on different ways of looking at how galaxies can form based on numerical simulations or, or even pen and pencil on paper calculations. And, you know, we're all trying to get to the same thing, but there are two different ways of doing it. And the theoretical one is certainly is just as big as the observational one. Mm -hmm. So from an observational standpoint, well, first of all, which, which instruments do you use? I use the uh, Hubble Space Telescope is probably the most common instrument that I use. And But I also use things like the Very Large Telescope in Chile, which is run by the European Southern Observatory, mm -hmm. which is a, a European-wide institute for looking at optical and infrared astronomy. also use telescopes like the Chandra X-ray Telescope and the Spitzer and infrared, and, uh, sorry, infrared Telescope and a few others, but those are the main ones that I use. 
So it is a combination of optical, infrared, and X-ray data that enables you to sort of build up ideas about what's going on with the galaxies. Um, Absolutely. And in terms of actual observations, are you focusing on a small subset of galaxies that are particularly interesting, or are you looking at large samples and then trying to derive statistical properties? How does it work? Yeah, that's a good question. So the way that most people do it today is the only way we can do it, which is to look at the most massive galaxies. And that's because those are the easiest to study because they're usually the brightest galaxies Uh at any given wavelength or any given distance. And so most studies have been done, observationally at least, on these supermassive galaxies. And that's just because we can find them and study them in great detail. And we also know that galaxies don't lose mass. So we know that if we want to trace galaxies through time, that the most massive galaxies in today's universe have to be, in some way, the the descendants of the most massive galaxies that we see in the higher redshift universe. So we'd like to go to lower mass galaxies, and we will, but it's going to take better instruments and deeper exposures and deeper data than we have now. Yeah, okay, so that that makes sense. You start with the brightest stuff in the sky, that's the easiest stuff to measure. And then, so what you're saying is you essentially do a bit of detective work and work backwards to try and figure out what this particular galaxy may have looked like in the past, or whether it's the result of a merger or that sort of thing. Right, so the issue is that you don't know for sure what is the ancestor of galaxies you see today in the universe. Yeah. That is, you can get a massive galaxy today, you don't know what its ancestor would look like, or even what its corresponding ancestor would look like if you go to higher redshifts. So there's there's a couple of ways of looking at how to tag galaxies at different redshifts. Mass is one of them, but also looking at galaxies in terms of how common they are. Like, let's say, the most massive galaxy in a given volume is probably the same galaxy as a different time, which is also the most massive galaxy in that volume. So if you can do that, and people have been doing that quite a bit, then you can say, well, that galaxy is statistically going to be the ancestor of this galaxy simply because it's the 10 most massive galaxies in a given volume at this redshift or this distance versus the 10 most massive galaxies in the same volume at another distance. You can say, well, statistically, those are the same galaxies. And so this is another approach that people have been using to try to trace this process of galaxy evolution by trying to get at least the best, statistically, the same galaxies at different times. No, yeah, so I understand you're insisting on using the word statistically because it is pretty cool to think that, oh, well, you can look at different redshifts and it's a concrete illustration of the concept which I think most of our listeners are familiar with, that the further away you look in space, the further back in time you're looking. But obviously you're not seeing the same galaxy twice. You're just seeing sort of... No, not at all. So the idea is that you're looking back in time but you're looking at a different part of the universe as well. So the idea is is that the universe is homogeneous in the sense that the same thing which happened, let's say, 5 billion years ago that we're looking back in the universe, that our part of the universe looked statistically the same way 5 billion years ago. And it's probably a true statement that the universe is homogeneous. Mm-hmm. All the evidence is that it is. And so it's never going to be the same galaxies. We'll never see the ancestors of the Milky Way simply because we can't go back in time. But someone, or some alien, let's say, five billion light years away, can look at where the Milky Way is, and we'll see the Milky Way as it looked five billion years ago, which statistically, the same part of the universe should look similar to us looking at them as them looking at us at this instant, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. so it is an important distinction to make because it does sound like a cool idea, but it, we're not practically looking looking at the same object because that's impossible. Right. (laughs) Um, And so, I mean, apart from the obvious increase in knowledge just about galaxies and galaxy processes and formation processes and how galaxies evolve, are there any other applications you can gain at a cosmological level or maybe on a larger scale by studying how the universe evolves via galaxies, I guess? There is. So one of the ways that galaxies form is, as I said before, through mergers. Now, if the universe is very dense in the sense that the mass density is very high, such that galaxies are very close together, you'll have a lot more merging happening, and you'll get more massive galaxies as time goes on. Also, if the universe is contracting, 
It's not. We don't think it is. But mm -hmm. if it is, then galaxies will get closer together. And so through time, you would see more mergers happening. If the universe is accelerating, which is what we think it's doing, then as time goes on, the galaxies will get further and further apart and mergers will become less common. And that's the broad idea behind using galaxy formation as a cosmological probe or a way to trace cosmology, simply because the way that galaxies are distributed today in terms of their formation histories and even their properties today depends a lot on the cosmology of the universe itself. If the universe's cosmology was different than the galaxy population that we would see today or even see it in the distant universe would also look different. And so trying to figure out exactly how that works is a very new area of research and uh, something that I'm working in now, but it's potentially a quite interesting way of looking at cosmology that hasn't been done before. Yeah, definitely. I mean, cosmologists are always looking for more probes of their models and of their values. So um, that does seem like a really interesting way of doing things. So that sort of way of looking at things would require the larger samples, I'm assuming, of massive galaxies and things like that than we have today. Absolutely. So we're really only scratching the surface in terms of the numbers of galaxies that we're seeing in the distant universe that we're sure are at in the distant universe and are sure that they have the properties that we think they do. So what we really need are larger and deeper surveys, which are coming online in the next five to ten years that'll really let us do things that we can only really dream about doing now in terms of using cosmology, using galaxies as a probe of the cosmology. Mm -hmm. So just to kind of try and recap a little bit, how close are we today to getting a fairly complete model of galaxy formation and evolution? How well do we know, say, like a spiral galaxy like our own Milky Way, how well acquainted are we with the whole sort of start to finish process of, of that galaxy? We are pretty far from that. And the reason is, is that galaxies do things which we really don't understand. One of them is that galaxies are much smaller in the distant universe than they are today. We don't understand how they get bigger. We don't know what the physical process is, and that's a big question. Another one is, going back to the Milky Way, is that the spiral arms of the Milky Way and other spiral galaxies, we don't have a good theory for how those are formed. We don't know how they can survive for billions of years. All the theories show that these spiral patterns should really dissipate and disappear quite quickly, but they, they seem to be around for billions of years, and we don't understand how that happens. And then uh, also mention another big mystery, which is that does appear that the most massive galaxies, the ones I was talking about earlier, mm -hmm. tend to form much earlier than lower mass galaxies in the universe. And that really goes against the idea cosmology would predict, which is that the most massive stuff should form last. And the reason is, is because we think we live in a hierarchical universe such that the low mass small things form first and then they will merge together, will accrete other things to form bigger and bigger things as time goes on. And so in that theory, the biggest structures should form last, but it appears that the biggest galaxies are forming before the lower mass systems, and we don't understand that. Yeah, that does actually appear really weird. <laughs> I hadn't realized that was the case. So there's a lot of unanswered questions and a lot of stuff left to discover. That's really cool. Lastly, just a final question, uh, a little bit on a lighter note. Do you have a favorite galaxy? <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, I do. So my favorite galaxy is a galaxy called NGC 1275, and this is the central galaxy of the Perseus Cluster. And this is one of the brightest X-ray sources in the sky. And this galaxy has basically everything you can imagine. It has a black hole, which is accreting gas, which is producing what we call active galactic nuclei. It's a central galaxy of this massive cluster. So it has it's a big galaxy. And it has uh, evidence for merging. And, and it has these amazing filaments that you can see in, in line emission. And we don't know what causes those lines to form in the galaxy. Um, it's not star formation, uh, but it's some process we don't understand. So this galaxy is my favorite simply because it basically has everything you can imagine happening in a galaxy. Awesome. That's really cool. Okay, well, thanks a lot for talking to us today, Chris. You're welcome.
Thanks for that, Indy. And now we come to the part of the show where we fit all of those other things that we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. And for my odd and end, I'm going to talk about an exoplanet. So scientists used some data from the SuperWASP Observatory, which is one of the UK's leading exoplanet detection programs, to observe a 16 million year old star, with a name which I've shortened to J1407. They looked at its light curve and noticed a really complex series of eclipses, which lasted a full 56 days. And they had the bright idea to model a planet with a ring system to see if that was what was causing these eclipses, which worked. So this is the first confirmed observation of a planet with a ring system outside of our solar system. And what's really awesome about this ring world is its scale. So here are a few facts. They predict that the planet has 37 rings, which extend to a radius of 0.6 astronomical units, which is almost two-thirds of the distance from the Earth to the Sun. That's huge. That's absolutely <laughs> massive. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is massive. And the mass of these rings is thought to be about 100 times the mass of the Moon, and there's a gap of about 0.4 AU, which is being carved out by its own Moon, which is between the mass of the Earth and Mars. And there are some really cool pictures online, artists' impressions of if you replace Saturn's rings with these, and you see that this would be really easily visible in the sky, it would dwarf our own moon. It looks very cool. Oh, yeah. They want some help observing it, so any astronomers out there, I'm going to put the link to the NASA archive long name online so that you can look it up and look up where it's located in the sky. Yeah, that would be really cool. Awesome. Continuing with the exoplanet theme, some astrophysicists in Birmingham have discovered an ancient solar system uh, using Kepler data. So it's about 35 parsecs away, which is the same as 117 light years. And the age of it is about two and a half times older than our own solar system, which comes to about 11.2 billion years old. And they determined the age of this by finding the age of the star. So they used various techniques and one of the biggest indicators of how old the star was was by looking at the metallicity. So did it have many more elements that weren't helium or hydrogen in the star? Because the lower the metallicity, like the older the star tends to be. So all of these five planets, they range in size from sort of Mercury to Venus kind of scales. And they orbit at periods of approximately 10 Earth days. So unfortunately this means they're too close to harbour any potential life. But the exciting thing is, is that because these planets clearly formed a much longer time ago than ours own ones did, there is the possibility that if there is another ancient solar system elsewhere, this could potentially harbour life, which is really cool. Yeah, because these small exoplanets are terrestrial, so they have a lot more metal kind of diversity and a lot more different chemical constituents, so which means that you could have more ingredients for the prospect of life beginning. And um, yeah, it's really cool. Like when our solar system formed, this ancient solar system was already older than how old we are now, which is a difficult sentence to say. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but that okay. So ancient, ancient solar systems, ancient civilizations is a big trope of science fiction. So this yeah, ima few... imagine the technology. I mean, it, <laughs> it would be amazing. But it's it's really cool that they found it. I mean, this is the oldest known system of terrestrial-sized planets that's been measured before. And it, it is incredibly old. It's yeah, it's it's like less than twenty percent of the universe's current age when it was formed. So it's, yeah, who knows what else could be somewhere else with <laughs> more details and uh, measurements. It's exciting. It seems like the more we look, the more common planets seem to be. A little more recently, on Monday as we record this, so the 26th of January, asteroid 2004 BL86 passed by the Earth at uh, 1.2 million kilometres, which is, is fairly close for a, for a pass, but you know, 
not that close. The asteroid was being observed during its pass by uh, radar imaging, which revealed a neat result, and that is that the asteroid, which itself is 325 metres in diameter, has its own moon, which is a little bit smaller at 70 metres diameter. So 325 metres, uh, I think you said earlier, Josie, that's about the same size as a cruise ship or something. Yeah, I imagine yeah. that flying past. <laughs> <laughs> you get hit by a beach ball. Um <laughs> So, I mean, it's a really, really cool result to to find that the this object has a moon uh, and, and just shows how weird and wonderful the universe can be. There are some videos of uh, of the radar imaging available online, and I'll put a link to those in the show notes. And was it right as well that if you're in Wales, you could see this on Monday? I believe so. I, I guess that's just because of the weather being better in Wales than it was everywhere else. So, um, yeah, uh, let us know if you, if you managed to see this uh, asteroid passing by. And now for what you can see, hopefully at some point during the month, anywhere in the world, here's Ian Morrison with this month's Night Sky. The Night Sky for February 2015. Looking south in the evening this month, we have a wonderful skyscape. Moving a little bit towards the west now is the constellation of Orion the Hunter. The three stars of his belt act as pointers up to the right to the constellation of Taurus the Bull, with the Hyades and Pleiades cluster. On the 25th of the month, as I shall say later, the moon actually lies right within the Hyades cluster. Going down to the left from those three stars, we come to the brightest star in the northern sky, Sirius, Alpha Canis Majoris. Over to the left of Betelgeuse, which is the top left-hand star of Orion, and a red giant star, we come to Canis Minor. Just one bright star, Procyon, and a somewhat fainter star to its upper right. And Canis Minor lies below Gemini, the heavenly twins, with the two bright stars, Castor above and Pollux below. Above Orion, and a bit up to the right of Gemini, is the bright star Capella, Alpha Auriga. A lovely arc of stars with some very nice open clusters, M37, M36, M38. All can be seen in binoculars from a dark site. And then rising from the east, we have the constellation of Leo the Lion. Like the lions in Trafalgar Square squatting on their haunches. And over to the right from its bright star, Regulus, Alpha Leonis, is an interloper. The brightest object in the sky in the evenings, apart from the moon, which is Jupiter, we'll come back to later on. So it's a lovely region of the sky to look at, and an area of the sky I really enjoy observing. What about the planets? Well, Jupiter reaches opposition on the 6th of the month, so this is a superb month to observe it, visible almost from dusk to dawn. At opposition, it'll be due south and so highest in the sky around midnight, its brightness peaking at about magnitude minus 2.6. In fact, just as I was writing this in January, I looked up at about 6.30 in the morning and saw Jupiter with a twin. But the twin was moving, the same brightness. It was, in fact, the International Space Station. They looked wonderful together in the morning sky. Jupiter starts a month in the extreme west of Leo and moves into Cancer on the 4th as it's moving westwards in retrograde motion across the heavens. 
The size of Jupiter's disk falls very slightly from 45.3 to 44.6 arc seconds towards the end of the month. And a small telescope will easily show the equatorial bands in the atmosphere and the four of the Galilean moons as they weave around it. Sometimes the great red spot is visible. In the highlights, I actually give a list of the times in the evening when the great red spot is facing us. Well, now Saturn, it's a morning object, rising at about uh, 0300 UT as the month begins. But by about 0140 at its end, it lies in Scorpius, very close to the left-hand star of the fan that marks his head and claws. Its diameter increases a bit from 16.2 to 16.9 arc seconds, and it shines at magnitude plus 0.5. It'll be high enough in the southeast before dawn to make out the beautiful ring system, which has now opened out to 25 degrees, virtually as open as they ever become. If only it were higher in the ecliptic, its elevation sadly never gets above about 22 degrees, and so the atmosphere hinders our view of this most beautiful planet. Mercury. Well, Mercury passed between us and the Sun, that's called inferior conjunction, on January the 30th. So it will not be visible in the pre-dawn sky until the end of the month. It reaches greatest elongation from the Sun on the 24th, but as the ecliptic is at a shallow angle to the horizon at dawn, it will lie only a little above the horizon, over in the southeast. Binoculars may well be needed to spot it, but please don't use them after the sun rises. Well, Mars has been in our sky for months now. It's moving eastwards relative to the stars, starting the month in Aquarius, but moving into Pisces on the 11th. It dims slightly from magnitude plus 1.2 to plus 1.3 during the month, as the angular disk falls slightly from 4.4 down to 4.3 arc seconds. It's about a hundred times fainter than Venus, which is close in proximity, and best observed as darkness falls, low above the southwestern horizon, lying about 9.5 degrees up to the left of Venus as the month begins. But as February progresses, Venus moves closer until on the 22nd they're less than half a degree apart. Given its very small angular size, no details will be seen on its salmon pink surface. Mars sets about two hours after the Sun at the end of the month. Well, finally, Venus. It's now an evening object, setting some 90 minutes after the Sun as the month begins, so shining at magnitude minus 3.9, it should be easy to spot above the southwestern horizon about one hour after sunset. Its angular size increases a little from 11 to 11.6 arc seconds during the month. It will appear as a small dot blurred by atmospheric turbulence. Between the 17th and the 26th of February, Venus and Mars lie within two degrees of each other. I suspect that due to its low elevation, its life will be split into a short vertical spectrum by refraction in the atmosphere. Well, what about the highlights of the month? Well, Jupiter is obviously the highlight. It's a great month to observe it. It's still high in the ecliptic, and hence when due south, 
at an elevation of about 55 degrees. So please have a go. And as I said, on the night sky page, there's a list of the times when the great red spot will be easily visible. At the very beginning of the month, one hour after sunset, about 6 p.m., Venus and Neptune lie very close together. Venus shining at minus 3.9, as I said, so very bright, but Neptune, magnitude at plus 8, relatively faint. A small telescope will probably be needed to spot Neptune, but it's certainly worth a try. They're closest on the first of the month, when Venus is 46 arc minutes, that's less than a degree, to the lower left of Neptune. Before dawn on the 13th, and looking east, a waning crescent moon will be seen just three and a half degrees to the left of Saturn, which is shining at magnitude plus 0.5. On the 17th of the month, before dawn, looking southeast, a thin waning crescent moon will be seen two and a half degrees to the left of Mercury. Between the 17th and the 26th of February, Mars and Venus, as I said, making a close pairing. By the 7th of the month, Mars lies 8 degrees up and a little to the left of Venus, as seen about one hour after sunset. But Venus is then rising rapidly in the heavens, and by the 17th will be just 2 degrees below. They stay within 2 degrees until the 26th, when Venus will be to the left of Mars. And the closest on the 22nd, when they're just 23 arc minutes apart. On the evening of the 20th, a thin waxing crescent moon will lie just six degrees to their right, a lovely imaging opportunity. When at their closest, Mars, far fainter than Venus, will probably be difficult to spot in Venus's glare, and so binoculars or a small telescope may well be needed to see them both. Finally, on February the 25th, the moon passes through the Hyades cluster, a very nice visual or photo opportunity, when the 7.5-day-old moon enters the centre of the V-shaped Hyades cluster. After midnight, it will pass within just a few arc minutes of the red giant star Aldebaran, shining at magnitude plus 0.8. And I should point out that Aldebaran has nothing to do with the Hyades cluster. It's sort of an interloper, and lies roughly halfway between ourselves and the cluster. It's a good month to observe the heavens. It really is good. I hope you'll enjoy it. Thanks for that, Ian. And for our listeners in the Sun Hemisphere, here's Claire Bretherton with the night sky where you are. Kia ora, and welcome to the February Jodcast from Carter Observatory in Wellington, New Zealand. We are continuing to enjoy the fine, clear summer weather here in the Southern Hemisphere. But as we edge ever closer to the equinox in March, our nights are slowly beginning to lengthen and our days shorten once again. Stunning bright Venus holds its position low in the west after sunset this month, setting around an hour after the sun. Sitting slightly above and to the right of Venus is Mars, appearing much fainter than its planetary neighbour. Mars is slipping slowly down the sky before disappearing into the evening twilight by the end of the month. On the 22nd it will be just 0.4 degrees from Venus. On the opposite side of the sky, low in the northeast, is Jupiter, which will remain in our skies throughout the night this month, slowly moving east to west across the sky before setting in the morning twilight. 
Jupiter reaches opposition on the 7th, when it will lie directly on the opposite side of the Earth to the Sun, and so will be due north at midnight. This is also the time when the Earth and Jupiter are at their closest, and so Jupiter will appear at its biggest and brightest in the sky. Jupiter is currently in the constellation of Cancer, the Crab. This is the dimmest of the zodiac constellations, containing just five main stars, only two of which are brighter than fourth magnitude. It does, however, contain some other interesting objects. At the centre of the constellation and to the north of Jupiter is a lovely open cluster of stars known as M44, Praesepe, the Manger, or the Beehive. At magnitude 3.7, the cluster is visible to the naked eye as a hazy nebula, and has been known since ancient times. It was one of the first objects Galileo studied when he turned his telescope to the skies. Galileo was able to pick out around 40 stars, but today we know that Praesepe contains over 1,000 individual members, with a combined mass of between 500 and 600 times that of the Sun. As one of the closest open star clusters to our solar system, M44 is a great target for binoculars or small telescopes, which will easily reveal a number of individual stars within it. To the other side of Jupiter is the bright star Regulus, or Alpha Leonis, the brightest star in the constellation of Leo the Lion. Regulus is at the top of an upside-down question mark, as we see it here in New Zealand, which marks the head and mane of the lion. With an apparent magnitude of 1.35, the star is the 21st brightest in the night sky, but it is in fact a system of four individual stars arranged in two pairs. Regulus A is a spectroscopic binary comprising of a hot, young, blue-white main-sequence star with a tiny companion of less than 0.3 solar masses, which is probably a white dwarf. Regulus B and C make a second pairing, located 177 arc seconds away from Regulus A. Resolving the B-C pair from Regulus A is a good challenge for binocular observers, and certainly achievable with a small telescope. A little below Regulus, and very low to the horizon at the beginning of the night, is another well-known double star called Algebra, or the main. First discovered by William Herschel in 1782, Algebra comprises a yellow-orange giant primary and a yellow-white giant secondary, at magnitudes 2.3 and 3.5 respectively. The pair have an angular separation of around four arc seconds, so you won't be able to resolve them in binoculars, but with a telescope of aperture around eight centimetres or greater, you should be able to split them. Your best bet will be to wait a little later into the evening when Leo rises higher above the northern horizon. Leo is also home to a number of bright galaxies, including the Leo triplet, a small group of interacting galaxies consisting of spiral galaxies M65, M66 and NGC 3628. Often known as the M66 group, the Leo triplet is located around 35 million light-years away and provides a fantastic opportunity to study galaxy interaction in our local universe. Each of the three main members shows signs of tidal disturbance, with NGC 3628 exhibiting an impressive tidal tail extending for over 300,000 light-years. The triplet is located fairly close to Denebola, or Beta Leonis, the second brightest star in the constellation, and around halfway between Cherton, Theta Leonis, and Iota Leonis. Most small telescopes should be able to pick up the group, but M66, the brightest of the three, should also be visible in large binoculars. Nearby is the M96 group, containing at least eight major galaxies, including M95, M96 and M105. 
To the other side of Cancer in our evening sky is a third zodiac constellation, Gemini, the twins. The bright stars Castor and Pollux mark the heads of the twins, and they can be found in the north after sunset. Pollux, the brighter of the two stars, is the 17th brightest star in our night sky. It is about 35 light years away from us, whilst Castor is in fact a sextuple star system located 52 light years from Earth. Nearby to Eta Geminorum, at the foot of the twin of Castor, is the open star cluster M35. Under good conditions, it can be seen with the unaided eye as a hazy star, but binoculars or a wide-field telescope will reveal more detail and are by far the best way to view this lovely cluster. Wishing you clear skies from the team here at Carter Observatory. Thanks for that, Claire. And now on to the feedback. First, we had some email feedback regarding our previous episode. Unfortunately, it wasn't uploaded in its entirety. We're sorry about that. It was um, an interesting experience getting the last show out. We had some technical issues with our recorder, and, and then when we did get that fixed, the show managed to get online without the end. So we're sorry about that. We're not sure how, how it managed to get not uploaded in its entirety, but um, thank you to those who pointed it out, and we fixed it as soon as we as we discovered that there was an issue. Also an email, we had an email from John Morell, who writes, As a further entry to your list of accidentally pointing telescopes at the sun, I was at George Bank on a radio astronomy distance learning course in April 2001. We were using the 42-foot telescope for some measurements and instructed it to move from one source to the next. Part of the way through the slew, so that's the moving of the telescope, the XY recorder suddenly slew right across the scale and hit the end stop with some force. For a short while, we thought we'd discovered a new, very energetic radio source, and it took a while to realise that the path from one object to the next had crossed the sun. There was no harm done, as the telescope still worked for the next source, and they just proceeded making their plots. John finishes a good weekend at Jodrell Bank, and he still remembers it. It sounds like a good weekend. And on Facebook, we have a message from Gavin Mellowship. He says, Hi guys, loved the January podcast. I encouraged my new girlfriend to view the Pleiades cluster through her binoculars the other night. It's long been a favourite thing for her to look at on winter nights, but she'd never bothered to view it with the aid of magnification. She was amazed. It made me reappreciate one of the more common objects to see in the night sky. That sounds great, Gavin. It's a lot more satisfying when you can see an object in more detail. I mean, I know that sometimes when I've looked at it just with the naked eye, you can still see a slightly blue haze, which kind of picks it out from yeah. all the others. It's a really beautiful object to look at. But watch out. That's the first step towards getting your own telescope. So. Yeah. Nothing wrong with having your own telescope. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you to everyone for our retweets and follow Fridays. If you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jogcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jogcast. On Facebook at facebook.com forward slash jogcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jogcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash group slash jogcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on the website. And all that remains is to thank Professor Chris Conselis for the interview. The editors were Adam Everson, Monique Henson, Mark Perver and Charlie Walker. And the producer was Benjamin Shaw. Until next time... Jordan. Jordan.